You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. Medgar told me not to hate. He said, Merle, for those that you hate, most of them don't know it. For those who do know it, they could care less. Civil rights leader Merle Evers-Williams. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. This is a somber anniversary. 60 years ago tonight, 60 years ago tonight, a white supremacist and Ku Klux Klan leader gunned down a civil rights leader named Medgar Evers in his own front yard. Now his killer remained at large for years to come, and it turned out that Medgar Evers' assassination was just the first of three high-profile deaths that decade, including Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr., Medgar Evers' death left behind his 30-year-old widow, Merle. Now, she remarried several years later and has been known ever since as Merle Evers-Williams. But she's always been a strong woman. I met her in 1999 when she wrote a memoir called Watch Me Fly. It's a book about her own lifetime of triumph over tragedy. So here now from 1999, Merle Evers-Williams. You do say at the outset of the book that Traditionally, you have been a very private person and shared your, your mm-hmm. private moments only with a select few. So I guess I have to ask, what made you decide to write this book? Well, there were a couple of reasons. One, uh, I thought I had uh, lived sufficiently long enough and had had enough experiences and enough personal growth to be able to uh, hopefully come up with a product that would be motivational and inspirational. Uh, but one of the compelling reasons behind writing this book uh, as it is and now is based on the number of questions that I had from college students, young women and young men, who asked time and time again, and they still do, how did you do it? How did you get over your sadness, your hatred, uh, when your husband, Medgar Evers, was killed. Uh, how did you rear three children alone? Uh, what financial problems did you have? How did you solve those? Uh, what made you take a risk and run for Congress when women were not running uh, for federal office, certainly in the year 1970? What happened uh, in corporate America? What happened along the way when you were in city government, the city of Los Angeles? Did you make any impacts? Um, How did you find love again? I want to know that you were open to that. And how did that man put up with being a third party in this relationship? How, how, how? How did you bring the NAACP Uh, out of financial difficulty and restore it to its rightful place in the civil rights arena. Just all of those things. What about the children? How are they? What happened in in their lives? Where are you now? Mm -hmm. You know, um, I call uh, this point in my life DT, decision time. And uh, my daughter asked the question years ago, Years and years ago, when I returned to school, she said, Mom, in this little sarcastic (laughs) way, what do you want to be when you grow up? 
you know, uh, smack, smack. <laughs> but, but she had a very good question there, and I'm not sure at that point I had the answer. I have been many people, many things, and this book is my declaration of independence, really, of saying, look, I've always been known most of my life as Medgar's wife, Medgar's widow. I'm a woman in my own right, and the time just seemed to be right for me to write this book and to share those experiences. Well, of course, as you point out in your book so very eloquently, you, were be, you, you had to, wanted to define yourself for yourself even before you lost Medgar. I mean, when, oh, when, that's true. When, at a time when, when women didn't have anything to do with the family finances, at a mm-hmm. time when you didn't even have your name on the checks, <laughs> uh, this, this, this kind of rankled you a little bit. Oh, um, you, you're being so kind and gentle here. It, it, it rankled me all right um, because it, it, it just seemed unfair. And really, I, I, I must say, and I say this in the book, that I had no example before me of what a male-female relationship was. I was reared by two women, two very strong women, my grandmother and my aunt, in a household where there was always peace. No one disagreed or anything. And I married Medgar at a very young age, 18, and uh, not nearly as sophisticated as 18-year-olds are today. I was a child bride. But I had a sense of who I was then. Even though I was timid, I I knew what I wanted for myself, and I wanted to be treated equally. You know, I grew up in a society where I wasn't. I grew up in a home where I was told not to rock the boat. And then I met this man who said, yes, you do that. You tear barriers down. And um, I think he realized he had created a little bit of a monster. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you do also point out at the outset of the book, we should also say, that this book is not about Medgar Evers. It is not about Walt Williams. It is not about the NAACP, the civil rights movement. It's about you. That's right. And I thought that it would be very important to put that up front because people always associate me, one with Medgar, one with civil rights, thirdly with the NAACP. And I'm saying, no, this is my story, the story of a woman's growth and development, which could be any woman's story. Mm-hmm. You know, there are many women out there who are widowed, many who are single parents, but divorce or, or what have you. It goes across racial lines but the as huge, well. The huge distinction, though, is that you're, you're right, many women on a daily basis become widowed, but not in such a public way as you did. And that, no. must, that must have been very difficult for you. It was very difficult for me. Um, and I do share with the reader uh, some of the difficulty, my depths of despair, of not wanting to live, of really being suicidal uh, there for a while, and looking at my three little children and realizing that I did not want them to be orphans, that I could not uh, put a blot on Medgar's life and his work by committing suicide. But uh, that that's a very private, very, very private part of me that, that I just haven't shared. I mean, close friends and family. I never reached the point where I attempted uh, to, to bring my life to an end, except through my erratic driving uh, habits uh, in the two-lane highways of uh, Mississippi. But um, it, it, it was key to... I guess I had to go through that because I was so filled with hatred for a while and I did not want to live 
And that was a turning point because I had to either survive and thrive or give up. Sink or swim. Mm-hmm. And I decided to swim. It would be very easy for you to have become very bitter when, as you point out in the book, just a few days before his death, the NAACP refused to assign a paid bodyguard oh, to your yes. husband. I mean, it would have been very easy. In today's litigious society, there would be lawsuits out the wazoo after a Oh, you're probably right. And and that was a part of my love-hate relationship with the organization. It's just that I happen to love it much more than I ever uh, let my anger take over with that. But I was very protective of Metger, uh, even though I fought uh, with him initially about his activism, and it wasn't because I didn't believe in him, it wasn't because I didn't believe in what he was doing. I was afraid of losing him. I was so afraid of losing him. Was that similar to what your friends Coretta Scott King and Betty Shabazz went through with with their husbands as well? No, 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 no. I I, I think each of us uh, were quite different. Um, uh, Coretta Scott King told me that she was the one who pushed Martin into uh, his activism. She was the one who encouraged him to do. Uh, with Betty, Betty was very private, and I'm not sure exactly where she was with that issue, but I know she loved Malcolm tremendously, and she was there for him. I think maybe I was the rebel uh, sort, you know, and I said, no, 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 we've got to get out of this. Uh, I want a normal life. I want you to have a nine-to-five job, and Medica looked at me like I was crazy, you know, because that was his mission in life, and he knew it, and he did challenge me uh, at one point, which turned our entire marriage around. He said, Burley, I have to go out here, and I fight with white folk. I put my life on the line. That's every day. At night, I fight with my own people, trying to drag them along uh, and get them out of their fear to become activists. And I kind of come home and fight with you. You know, either you're with me or you aren't, and you have to make a decision. And it took a few days, really, to make that decision because I wasn't sure that I wanted to live in and have my children grow up in that kind of atmosphere. But love ruled. And uh, I said, okay, we made a few uh, arrangements between the two of us. I'll work with you, spend a little more time with your family, and I won't complain anymore. And it worked. And those stories that I share like that are basically to say to, to people that those of us who were actively involved in the civil rights movement then, and I quickly add that Metka was a pioneer. He helped to pave the way for mm-hmm. Dr. King and others. That it was not a romantic thing, you know, of, of, of uh, uh, the two of us against the world type of thing. There were lots of us who had struggles in our marriage, but as a result of those struggles, the marriages became much stronger and endured forever. After this short break, Merle Evers-Williams addresses the question, how do you find love again? Now back to my 1999 conversation with Merle Evers-Williams. Now, it was those early experiences that also strengthened you for a few years hence 
when uh, you come across somebody like Clark at Arco, who's bound and determined <laughs> <laughs> that he's Isn't not going to let a woman, let alone a black woman, That's right. take over what his turf is. That's right, but it wasn't his turf. He thought it was his <laughs> turf. And I, this is a portrait to, and I'm not being modest here at all, of a woman of strength. Uh, who had the strength and really didn't realize it until her first husband brought that part of her out. And my days in corporate America were some of the best I've had in terms of learning experiences and others. And I had a supervisor say to me, Evers, don't take these things personally. Learn the game. Learn how to play the game. And I became very good in learning to play the game. Clark was no longer there. I was and elevated, and he never knew what hit him. <laughs> and I just love those kinds of little things. And I, you know, I, I, I share those kinds of how-tos, and I trust without preaching about it. Because as I said to my editor at Little Brown, I'm not going to fall into the trap of telling people what to do. I'll tell them that I handle situations in this way and perhaps they can learn from it. Is that why you call this an instructive autobiography? Yes, it really is. It truly is. Let me come back to one of the how questions that you mentioned at the outset mm -hmm. that people always ask you and ask you to, to expand on that. How do you find love again? This is the question that probably most people, you know, most people, after they've suffered a devastating loss, whether it's death or divorce, they wonder, how will I ever find love again? What will become well, of me? Well, of course, it was 13 years later. Um, I, I say jokingly sometimes, don't look for it. Let it come to you. And it will. As you grow, as you develop, as you open yourself up to it. I really did not want to um, get married again. Um, I was very satisfied with my life as it was. But uh, Walter was my very dear and best friend. And he put the marriage curve in the relationship. And I backed away from it. Uh, of course, I share with the reader, too, that uh, he said in his own strong way, fine, we aren't going anywhere, this is it. And I thought to myself, oh, he'll be back. But I had to go to him. And I realized the depth of, of his being, his strength, his commitment to civil rights activities, his joy that he had with my children and they with them. And then there was something that my Aunt Murley said to me, every Saturday that she would call me, baby, how are you? Oh, I'm fine, auntie. Have you found a man yet? She would say. <laughs> and I would say, no, I'm not interested. I'm not looking. And she would reply, you had better start looking because you're just getting older and uglier every day. <laughs> oh, yes. So, I mean, uh, you, you know, that was a gentle nudging there. But basically, Walter was someone that I respected, someone that I admired, my very best friend. And I dedicated this book to him, and I call him my Rock of Gibraltar 
my balm in Gilead and the wind beneath my wings. And that's exactly what he was. And it certainly is no easier to lose someone slowly than it is to lose someone um, in an instant. It's terrible. And, you know, I hope that for the men who might read this book, that they will catch that little bit of advice there. Get a test. And when they reach the age of 40, have the simple PSA test to see if there is any indication of prostate cancer so it can be caught early. Uh, it, it's it's um, it is terrible to see someone you love suffer like that. And Walt and I knew for three years that he was terminal, and we enjoyed each other. We enjoyed life to the best of our ability. We admitted to each other that time was drawing near. It was not easy, but when he told me he was ready to go, but he just did not want to leave me. I told him I love you enough to let you go. And it, it's a beautiful love story. It's a beautiful love story, two of them there. And I'm very blessed. And I've said to people, I said, how could you deal with this tragedy? How could you not be a bitter woman? Well, what good would that do? I went through a period of hatred for those that I felt had, uh, and I knew uh, had been responsible for Medgar's death. Um, but Medgar told me not to hate. He said, Merle, for those that you hate, most of them don't know it. For those who do know it, they could care less. A wonderful lesson there. Merle Evers-Williams is 90 now and still active as a civil rights activist and leader. And you can get your copy of Watch Me Fly by clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. And HeardEverything.com is where you'll also find my 1991 interview with Coretta Scott King. Martin was a person who believed that to be great is to serve and not have a million dollars in the bank. But it is to reach out and try to you know, help others and to improve the conditions of our society. And my 1994 conversation with one of Dr. King's close associates, Andrew Young. If you had told Martin Luther King after the speech on the march on Washington, what do you think of Andy Young being ambassador to the United Nations? He'd have laughed. And he would have said, well, if we can ever get the right to vote, maybe some of those things will happen. And of course, don't forget we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. Would you please subscribe today if you haven't already? You don't want to miss an episode. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, she was known as the woman that... America Loved to Hate, one of the original candidates on The Apprentice, my 2008 interview with Omarosa. I have taught people how to treat me. No, you're not going to push me around. You should never underestimate me, and you should probably never turn your back on me, because <laughs> you never know what's going to happen. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Thompson.